the, change, the story of changed lives, that's what the cardboard testimony is about. And you heard it last week with Kelly and Debbie and Celia as they shared their stories. You, you, you'll hear it next week when Linda Brescia shares her story. Um, and it's what happens when Christ comes into a life and people take their life and they place it under the obedience of Christ and under his direction and follow him in a, in a wholehearted way. And not without failing, and not without stumbling, but he still picks us up and, and receives us and takes us. And so you'll hear these stories, and that's what we want to be about as a church, or stories about how Christ is changing lives. And this morning, we continue to read about the story of Abraham and his life being changed. Can you open up your Bibles to chapter 17? And uh, this morning, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard, and... Um, Find your way there. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 first. Now, um, to kind of recap a little bit, um, you know, in chapter 12, Abraham is just living his life in his ancestral homeland where all of his generations have lived, and God selects him and calls him to leave and calls him and says, go to the place I will show you. And so he leaves. He's been given a promise in Genesis 12 that I will make you the father of many nations um, I, will, I will bless you, I will give you a land. And so he leaves, and eventually he arrives in this place called Canaan. And God begins to deal with him there, begins to transform him, begins to interact in his life in such a way that the man he was in Genesis 12 has slowly begun to be changed. And today in Genesis 17, there's somewhat of a pinnacle, there's somewhat of a turning point, there's somewhat of a, a mile marker in that change that has been happening in his life all this time. And so he begins like this in Genesis 17, 1 through 9. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Lord, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make, your na- and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, God, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I, will make, and I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We'll stop right there, I think. Yep, we'll stop right there, 1 through 8, all right? Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been 24 years since Genesis 12, to kind of put that in perspective. In Genesis 12, he's called out of his homeland to go to a place God will show you. Now, 24 years later, God has continued to reveal this promise that he's been making, this, this thing he's been doing in Abraham's life. And now, 24 years later, he's beginning to put more detail to the promise he's made. It's been 13 years since the last time God had interacted with him. That was in the previous chapter. That had to do with his incident with Hagar and conceiving the son Ishmael out of that incident. So 13 years has passed since then, and it's been silent. And now God calls again. And this time he says this. 
I am God Almighty. The word, the Hebrew word there, El Shaddai, many people are familiar with it only because it was in a song. And Amy Grant, thank you, Amy Grant, for expanding our Hebrew uh, vocabulary. It's the first time he's used this name for himself. It emphasizes infinite power. It's used exclusively of God in relationship to his children. Did you catch that? It's used exclusively for God in relationship to his children. The El, the part of the name El means strong one. Shaddai has this emphasis on, on nourishment from the bosom of a nursing mother. And so God, it's almost like God is saying here, God seems to be saying that we are empowered to live out our responsibilities by feeding on him just as a child grows by feeding on the milk of its mother. In a sense, you know, you can look forward a little bit because we know the story and you can kind of begin to see God is calling Abraham to something that, God, that Abraham has not been able to do. In 99 years, he's not been able to produce a child. And then God says, I am the one that does these things for you. I do these things as you rely upon me, as you take nourishment and sustenance from me. I'm the one who does these things for you. And Abraham at this point still is trying to figure out exactly where God is going, what he's doing. And the next thing God says, he goes, I'm going to sustain you. And then he says this, walk before me and be blameless. Well, all right. That's an incredibly succinct command from God. Genesis records, Genesis records that Enoch, as well as Noah, walked with God. But in this case, that intimacy is implied, but it's different than Abraham's ancestors. They're, he's not saying that Abraham is going to walk with me. He says, your ancestors did that, but you're going to walk before me. And so, you know, are we talking about in procession? Is that, you know, Abraham will walk and then God's going to be coming up behind him? I don't, I don't think it has that sense necessarily. I think it's more like, like God is going to be there and Abraham is going to live his life out in front of him. And so he says, live your life out in front of me. And then he says, and be blameless. Well, that word blameless trips us up a little bit. So we, we are trying to figure out, like, what is he asking of him? What does it mean to be blameless? Does it mean to be perfect? Does it mean to be without flaw or fault? Does it mean to be without sin? The word, the, the, the word really means, in its, in its Hebrew context, it means whole, complete, with integrity. And think of it like this, to, to be complete, and in a sense, be complete in your devotion. Not divided in your devotion, but to be complete in your devotion. And to say you're, to be blameless means that no one can cast blame on you. And that's what he's saying to Abram. Live out your life in front of me. I'm going to sustain you, but you live out your life in front of me without, without being blamed, with, with an, an integrity, with a, devote, with a devoted attention upon living your life for me. To not find fault. Now, as we move through the next few verses, as a good student of the Bible will do, they'll pay attention to words, right? We pay attention to words when we're studying our Bible. The therefores, all those kind of things like that. But we also pay attention to the repetition of words. And this passage 
he was he just he has so many words that are repeated. So, for instance, you don't have to count them right now because I don't want you to read the whole thing. I want us to move forward in our in the text here. But I will. God says I will seven times. Seven times. He's he's going to do a lot. He's talking about what he will do seven times. In verse two, he says it twice. I will establish my covenant. I will multiply you exceedingly. In verse 6, he says it two times. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations after you. In verse 7, he says it again. I will establish my covenant. In verse 8, he says it two more times. I will give to you. And then he says also, and I will be their God. He says covenant, my covenant, nine times throughout the text. He says everlasting covenant three times. So in that, he's like going, I'm going to make a covenant with you. But this covenant is not one that's just going to last your lifetime. This covenant is an everlasting covenant. The covenant I'm making with you. Now, he said this 12 times now or nine times. And then he's called it everlasting three times. He's saying it's forever. He uses the word exceedingly or multitude five times. He uses the word descendants six times. And then he throws in your generations, which would be equivalent another time. So when you look at these words that he's using, when you look at how he's, multi- how he's emphasizing these words, you know, you can look at that and say, well, we can sum it up this way. This would be a safe way to maybe begin to sum it up. God, God is doing something. I will. God says, I will. God is doing something. And that something is a covenant. That's an agreement. That is something that says, this is what's going to happen. My agreement with you. And, and not only that, but he says, this agreement I'm making with you, it's not a short agreement. It's not for a, a, a particular time. It is forever because it's everlasting agreement. And then not only that, whatever he's doing, this word exceedingly and multitude, it is going to be grand. It is going to be large. It is going to be overwhelming in its, in its scope. And not only that, it is going to extend to all of Abraham's descendants. That's a big thing that God is doing. And you note that he's the one doing all of it. He's the one doing all of it. Now, I want you to know one more thing. Because I want you to be able to read your Bible and, and look at your Bible and then compare your Bible to what you read in the news. And I've, we've gone over this a few times, but it doesn't ever hurt. Repetition is a good thing. This covenant is everlasting. He says it in the text. So if, as some believe, that the church replaces Israel because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah... For some people to believe that the church replaces Israel and their theology, that would mean that this covenant is not everlasting, is it? That would mean that someone, that God is no longer a promise keeper because he says, I'm keeping this covenant with you forever. So there are some that says, well, Israel, they're not in the covenant anymore. The church has taken their place. There's a lot of theology beyond all that. We won't get into that. But that's what they believe. But, and for you to believe that, though, it would make God a liar. Because it would mean he didn't keep the covenant. 
It's not an everlasting covenant. It was only everlasting to the degree that Israel kept it. And if you remember from chapter 15, he made a covenant with, with Abraham that did not involve Abraham. It only involved God to keep the covenant. And not only that, but if you'll notice in verse 8, he says, and I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. In other words, the land that I brought you to, all the land of Canaan, I'm going to give that to you as an everlasting possession. As an everlasting possession. So when you read your news and you read people who say that Israel is squatting on this land and it's not theirs, that it's Arab land, that it's Palestinian land, you just need to remember that your Bible informs what you read in the news, that the Bible informs what you're hearing in the news, and that all of that land is Jewish land. It has been for 3,000 years. It will be for eternity. But the human heart will always fight over it. It will always fight over it. And you want to know something? There is a peace plan in process. Have you heard about it? It's not in the news because it's in the Bible, and it says that King Jesus would bring peace to the land one day that will last forever. But in the meantime, man's heart would never be able to pull that off. Man's heart will never be able to pull that off. So, in the middle of all of this that's happening here, Abram, Abram gets his own cardboard moment. This is what he's been his entire life, the father of none. Abram means exalted father. Do you think that was awkward? Do you think that was awkward? Father of none is what his reality was, and yet his name said exalted father. And so here, God enters the picture in this chapter, and there we see it in verse 5, and he changes the name from Abraham, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many. I have to admit, it probably wasn't any less awkward after he had his name changed, was it? Because at that point, he had one son, Ishmael, and it was from a slave girl. It wasn't even from his own wife. But he went through his own cardboard testimony moment where God changed his name and changed his status and made him into the father of many there. He did the same thing with Sarah in verse 15. Sarai meant princess, and Sarah, when he changed the name, still meant basically the same thing. The the change is really not that different. It's more the emphasis of a new beginning, not on what they have done, but what God is about to do, what he's talked about doing. Because look in verse 2. He says, I will establish. That I will establish means I'm going to put this in motion. It means I'm going to start the snowball at the top of the hill. And that's literally a great way to think about it. It's a man and a woman that are ancient, that are infertile, that they have nothing to roll down the hill at all. Nothing. And God says, let me give you something. His name is Isaac. I'm about to start this. And you are going to have this son a year from now, and you will name him Isaac, and he is the beginning of a snowball that is going to roll down this hill and be humongous. And you remember how the Lord described the promise? If you can count the stars, that's how many your descendants would be. If you could count the sand on the beach, that's how many the descendants would be. But you can't count that many, and that's how many descendants. That's how big this snowball is going to be. It is going to be overwhelming. 
And I'm going to start that right now. I'm about to do that. I will establish it. So Sarai, you will be a princess. You will be the mother of nations. Abraham, you will be the father of many because that's what I'm starting right now. And he even tells them in this passage, a year from now, his name will be Isaac and you will have a son. It's interesting also that in the passage, not only does God clarify Sarah's role, but he clarifies Ishmael's role in verse 20. Matter of fact, interestingly enough, here's another phrase that is used throughout the text. As for you. As for you. He, he takes the covenant and he goes, this is how all the participants, this is the role that all the players are going to play in this covenant. This is how it's going to work. And he begins to like assign duties. He, he assigns roles. And he says, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. So he does that. In verse 9, I mean in verse 4, he starts right there. And he says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations. In verse 9, he says to Abraham, Now as for you, you will keep my covenant. In verse 15, for Sarah, he says, Now as for Sarah, your wife, she will be called, she will be called Sarah. And then in verse 20, for Ishmael, he says, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly, and he shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. It's really interesting, and there's a lot of writing and, and conjecture or some you know, thinking that happens on verse 17. So go there with me. Look at it real for a minute. Let's start in verse 15, and then there, and it says, Then God said to Abraham, Abraham As for Sarai, your wife, she shall, not, she shall not be called Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. And then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Isn't that an interesting thing? You, you, and there's many ways to read it. I mean, as, for as many commentators out there, there are different ways that they all look at this passage. And so some are saying it's kind of like a, you're kidding, Right? Some are like saying it was like a giddy happiness about it. Some were saying that it is doubtful, that it is disbelief. So you could look at it many different ways. But the interesting thing that I want to draw attention to here is this, is that in looking at the passage, and I looked at the phrase, fell on his face, I just kind of got caught in. I just happened to notice something and began to look at it. That phrase, fell on his face, this is bonus, by the way, all right? Um, it's used 19 times. And every single time, it has to do where one individual humiliates or humbles themselves before another. So just like, just like Abraham did here for God, he, he bowed before him. He put his face to the ground you know, in, humility, in humility. It's used 19 times for that situation. It's interesting that two occasions are included in that where the people who humble themselves didn't do it willingly. It is the exact same phrase, for Goliath fell on his face. Here, the mighty and the proud one was humbled, not by his own choice, but by the choice and by the sovereign power and, and intervention 
of God through a shepherd boy. And so here, all of a sudden, the mighty and the proud Goliath, who boasted and taunted the armies of Israel, he has now been humbled before David the boy. Not of his own doing, but of God's. The other time that it's used in a different way is is in 1 Samuel 5. That that Goliath passage, if you're writing that down, is 1 Samuel 17. And then in 1 Samuel 5, this phrase is used again. But this time, it's of when the Philistines had captured the ark. And they took it, and they put it in the temple of Dagon, their their false god, their, their idol. And they took the ark of the true God, and they put it in the temple of a false god. And the next morning when they got up, they walked into their temple, and they found Dagon had fallen on his face before the ark. And it happened twice. I love that. Is that just not the coolest? That the one who is deserving of exaltation even got it from a chiseled out rock or a carved up piece of wood that was called a God. That even in that, God took that and subjected it to himself. And in that case, it was unwilling. So, see, wasn't that fun? I love that one. So, um, that face down thing was pretty cool to stumble across. All right? Now then, you might have noticed, if you've studied this passage or read through this passage at all, that we've not touched on anything in verses 10 through 14 or verses 20 through 27. If you want to look at that right now, let me just read to you, and then one verse here, and then you're going to understand where we're going. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants. After you, every male among you will be circumcised. At that point, everything got awkward. Right now, some of you are moving around your seats. You're kind of moving like this. You're not sure where we're going. Others of you are looking straight ahead and saying, I hope he doesn't have pictures. (laughs) This whole issue of circumcision brings up a lot of questions and a lot of queasiness. So let's set the table for this discussion. If you're not sure what circumcision is, that's what parents and Google are for, okay? (laughs) But to discuss this means, but in discussing this, I'm not going to say anything that is for shock value. But the scripture is plain in so many areas. It is really plain. As a matter of fact, it is very plain, and for us English people, and for us modern people, it has dumbed down some of the text. When Paul talks about filthy rags, go and look it up. He's not talking about stuff you just cleaned with. When he talks about his righteousness being as dung, he doesn't use that word. The Bible is salty at times, and yet we have a hard time stomaching that in our Sunday morning services. And so I'm not going to do anything for shock value, but we will talk somewhat plainly here for the next few moments. And and, and matter of fact, this is the other thing too. You know what? This should not be anything that you're not already seeing on your TVs, on your billboards driving down 95, in a magazine um, cover standing in in the supermarket aisle. You're hearing it in your music. You're seeing it in your books. Your kids are hearing it in school, whether they like it, you like it or not. It's on the internet, it's in Snapchat, it's in YouTube, you name it, it's out there. 
and it's in our Bibles. So, this is what God states, that every male shall be circumcised. Let's read the text. Starting in verse 11, since we read 9 and 10. And you shall be circumcised in your flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall be surely circumcised. Thus my, my, shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's be honest. You're thinking, what was Abraham thinking? He's like going, okay, we're talking about a covenant. And then he's like going, we're going to what? He's like going, dude, I'm 99 years old and we've managed this with a, for a long time. We could probably do this for another few years. Let's start it with Isaac. You promised me Isaac? Let's do it with him. He's coming up. Let's just start with him, all right? But I've done without this for 100 years. Let's just keep that ball rolling, all right? I mean, you've got to think about it. This is the guy that's negotiating with God just a few chapters ago, right? For Sodom and Gomorrah. And I've got to tell you, right now, I'd be, a, I'd be a negotiating fool. And yet, he doesn't do that, interestingly enough. And not only that, he says that every male in your camp will be circumcised. Can you imagine as news of that went through the camp? I imagine there are men in that camp going, I'm going to be a Jebusite from now on. I'll be a Gergeshite in this from now on, but I'm not staying in this camp because I'm not having no part of that. It had to be an unpleasantness running through that. And there are questions. Why this? Of all things, why this? Why not a tattoo? Why not a hat? Or a robe? Or a bracelet? Or a necklace? And what about the women? All cultures in this region were male-dominated. So, the right, so for the right to be only toward men... Would not be unusual, but what are the women included in, the, in, this, in this, this sign? What is their sign? And matter of fact, you know what? If you do this to me, Lord, nobody's going to see it. So exactly what is this sign for? No one's even going to know. So let's just not do this and say we did. But you want to know something? That's the point. It wasn't for the nations. It wasn't for them to demonstrate how Jewish they were. I mean, I've often wondered, it's like, it's, I'm, I'm, for years I understood this passage to mean that this sign was the sign that was meant to demonstrate that you were Jewish, that you were coming with God. And I've always thought, so what do you do? Do you walk around just like lifting your toga and like demonstrating this? How do you do this? Why does this work this way? But it's not that at all. It was never intended to be a sign for the nations. It was always intended to be a sign between that man and his God. And that's all it was intended for. He even says that, he even says here that it was intended for me to keep this covenant with you. Let me go back and draw out a couple other points. Why not a tattoo? Why not special clothing or jewelry? Because, as is the case with God, blood must be shed in a covenant. 
And just like the sacrifice in Genesis 15, where the animals were cut in half and blood was shed, that was the establishment of the covenant. Here, the male foreskin was cut off the penis and blood was shed. That was the establishment of the covenant between God and that man. This was the sign, not a public sign, but a private sign, that this man belonged to Jehovah. It was not a sign for the nations. It was an individual sign. It was an individual reminder for this man that he belonged to God and that the covenant existed between that man and his God. So think about this. Every time that man got dressed and undressed, Every time he urinated. So every day on a daily basis, he's reminded that he is in covenant, that he has been marked, that he has been cut. And then later in life, when this man takes a wife, that sign extends to her as his mate and as the woman under him, as his helpmate. That sign extends to her. She sees it. She knows it. She knows who they belong to because of the sign. And so here we are in chapter 17, and it's a turning point in the covenant between God and Abraham. He says in verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. He says in verse 11, you be circumcised. And Abraham's response is that he obeyed. Is that he obeyed. Look. No, no, don't go back there. But as is the case with mankind, we corrupt things. The Jews eventually began to feel entitled because they were uncircumcised. They began to feel that they were covenant people, and they alone were covenant people, and that no one else could be that. They began to feel, matter of fact, even as Christ came into the picture, they felt that circumcision equated more than favor with God, but reconciliation with God. They felt that it meant that they were redeemed that they were in good favor with God and could not be removed. They could not lose that because of the circumcision. In a sense, they felt like that was their salvation. And it became a sticking point in the New Testament church, so much so that many felt that you could not be saved by faith in Christ alone, but you had to be circumcised as well. They wanted to bring that with them because it had been so much a part of their, their faith system. And you read about in Galatians especially, and in Romans somewhat, but you read this term of Judaizers. And that was really a term that was assigned to Jewish Christians, for the most part sometimes, but also Jews, who said that you cannot be of the faith of Christ without being cut. And so in those situations, it was not faith alone in Christ, but it was faith plus your work of cutting. It was faith plus circumcision. See, because when Christ came, Christ says, you believe and that's all you have to do because I've done everything else. There's nothing you have to do. But the Judaizers, especially in Galatians, were saying, oh, no, 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 no. You have to do something and that something is yield to circumcision. Well, even that takes away from the glory of God. Even that to say that I've done something to participate in my salvation is not appropriate, is not okay. It takes away from Christ's death as being fully satisfactory, fully sufficient for the salvation of mankind. Even to say that a man must be circumcised to come into the kingdom. And that's why Paul is railing on these Judaizers, in Galatians especially. 
He says, you can't have both. It is only Christ. He goes on, and you'll read it in Romans. You read it in Colossians. You read it in, in Galatians. That with the advent of Christ's forgiveness through his blood... Man didn't need to keep the old covenant because God had established a new covenant. And the sign was not one made with human hands, but by the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God circumcised the heart. In other words, he cut away the dead flesh, and he gave his followers a new heart, alive by his Spirit, cleansed by his Spirit in a way that only God could do. And that new cleansed heart was the new sign that a man had come into relationship with God. The old covenant said that circumcision was a sign that you belonged to him. And the new covenant says it is nothing on the outside. It is something that happens to the heart on the inside. And God cuts away all that old stuff, all of that stuff that was was the old way of doing things, of your own self-salvation. And he cuts away all that and he says, I save you and I give you a new clean heart. And And you did not have any part in that. The sign in the new covenant is a new heart that God puts in those who have trusted him. So this chapter marks somewhat of a maturing, I think, of Abraham's faith. Look to verse 23, please. 17, 23. Then Abram, and so here we are. Let me start in 22. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the same day as God had said to him. In the same day. I mean, how many of us, when we think God is telling us something, we go, well, I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to go ask the pastor about it. I'm going to write, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to see what Matt Chandler says about it. I'm going to see what, you know, uh, you know, and you just list all the people that you think are authorities in the Scripture, and you say, what do they believe about this? And here is the thing, is that when God is calling you to do something, He's asking you to obey And not only that, but he's usually asking us to obey in the moment. How many times, and I can say this with confidence because I'm an offender, how many times have you felt like that you were in a situation and you said, and you knew in that still small voice in your heart, you knew right in there somewhere that you needed to say something. You needed to do something in that situation. You needed to give the dude sitting on the doorstep, five bucks, or your leftovers lunch, or you need to go buy him lunch. You needed to, to, to say to someone who was down and out maybe that, you know, I just want to let you know that God loves you. You needed to, to step into their life in some way and, and share good news with them. But what we do is we think about it. What will they say? What will they do? What will my boss say? What will my friends say? What will people around me that I do not know and I will never see them ever again in my life, what will they think of me? Do you realize what, what value 
and what weight we give people that have never, ever seen us before and never will see us again. We give them so much weight in our lives. We yield to what we think they might think. And then we don't do it. And we get in the car, and we're on our way home, or we get home, and we're lying in bed, and we're thinking about our day, and we go, I really should have done that. I really should have done that. Don't you think that's why obedience in the moment is really the very best thing? Would you, would, let's think about this. So let's think, let's say that you feel like God is calling you into something, and you're thinking about it, you know, and you go, what if I'm wrong? You want to know something? If you're going to be wrong and you're wrong because you're trying to obey God, that's not a bad way to be wrong. It's a lot worse to think that God was calling you and your fear of being wrong kept you from doing it and you didn't do it at all. I mean, it, has, it goes back to the thing they say about scientists and genius and, and developers and, and all these people. You know, like, well, I don't know what it is. Let's say Einstein or whoever invented the light bulb. You know, they had a thousand different ways it didn't work until they found one. Who did the light bulb? Who does that? Yeah, that guy. Yeah, the guy from Jersey. Yeah. He grew up in, he grew up in the town. They named him after his town up there, right? Yeah, that guy. And so, you know, it says that he, he had like thousands of failures before he found one that was right. You know, it's like, wouldn't you want to like be wrong with God? Wouldn't you want to obey him and find out that was not what he necessarily wanted? He says, hey, God loves you. And the guy's like going, why'd you say that? But it didn't hurt the guy to say that, right? And do that a thousand times? Tell people God loves them a thousand times even though God wasn't telling you to do that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with like just doing the right thing before God? Edison did it, obviously, right? Okay. Einstein did too, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Christians, we do not have to cut ourselves or mark ourselves in some med- physical way. We don't have to have a, tattoo, a tattoo. We don't have to wear clothing. We don't have to wear jewelry. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Because Christ shed his blood on our behalf, giving us the forgiveness for our sins and the redemption for our lives redeeming us back to God. Our new sign is a new heart that God has cleansed us and made us alive by His Spirit. But even though there are vast differences between the signs of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the distinguishing factor, the thing that is the same and has never changed from the days of Abraham until this moment that we're standing here today is obedience. Is obedience. And so... If you want to talk about having a changed life, if you want to be able to have some kind of cardboard testimony or any other kind of testimony, aluminum, anything at all, if you want to have a testimony, you will never have one unless you obey. All you will have is this side of the cardboard. You never get to flip the cardboard unless you obey. Never. It will always be this side. It will always be I doubted. It will always be that I was broken. It will always be that I was weak. This will be your testimony. But when you obey, you get to flip the card. 
It doesn't happen any other way. I mean, it doesn't happen any other way. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But, trust and obey. You don't get a cardboard testimony. You don't get a changed life. You don't get anything until you trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for Abraham because I see in his life the times when he obeyed flawlessly and he sets a standard for me that I fear that I can ever reach and the times when he faltered and I go, that, that man is me. And I'm grateful for his testimony and for his cardboard testimony, for his life where he sometimes didn't obey and then other times he did. I'm grateful for that. And Lord, like I was reading in the the Gospels just recently where Christ comes to the man and the man pleads with him to heal him and, and Jesus says, do you believe? And the man says, Lord, I believe. Help my disbelief. Oh, Lord. I pray the same thing. Help my disbelief. So grateful for your patience and your long suffering. Wow. Thank you so much for being that way with me and all of us in this room. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.